Our sermon text this morning will be Genesis chapter 19, and this morning we'll go from Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 to 11. Genesis 19, verses 1 to 11. I'm going to pick up the reading back in Genesis chapter 18 for a little bit of the background. We're starting in Genesis 18 at verse 16. Genesis 18, verse 16, and we'll read through to Genesis 19, 11. Um, before we do that reading, I will pray and then we'll read the scriptures. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do give you thanks for your word, the holy scriptures. We pray that our hearts would be made ready to receive the scriptures for that which they are, the very words of God. May we be given ears that hear, eyes that see, and hearts that are understanding and obedient. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So picking it up at Genesis chapter 18, verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. I remind you that Abraham had just had, um, as it were, a, a meal with angels and with God himself. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again. But this once, suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when, when he had finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. Chapter 19, verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. 
And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But he said, stand back. Sorry, but they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Amen. May God bless his word to us. Two um, two little real-life stories before we get into the actual body of the message. Two little real-life stories from my life. In the first one, I'd been a Christian only a short time, possibly a year and a half. And um, in the course of my work, I used to uh, run into a guy. I remember his first name. His first name was Carl. I had attempted to witness to Carl at times in the, in, you know, especially when you're uh, freshly and newly converted. This is a great thing and you just want to tell everyone. Well, one morning I come across Carl and Carl said to me, he said, you know, I tried to read the Bible on the weekend. That's great, Carl. I'm, I'm really glad. He said, yeah, he said, uh, I got as far as that story about Sodom and Gomorrah and I gave up. I said, why did you give up there? He said, well, it's obviously so stupid. Something like that would never happen. Now, I had no answers. I had no great, you know, apologetical skills at that stage. I was just a fairly new Christian who was keen. And my only answer that I gave him, and it was the only answer I had at the time, was as far as I'm concerned, Carl, if it was in the scripture, it happened. And uh, we never spoke of it again. But about 10 years later, about 10 years later, I was working as an interstate driver and I pulled into a service centre, a truck service centre in one of uh, Sydney's less desirable suburbs. Very early in the morning, it was something like 12.30am, 1am in the morning, I had to fuel up. And, um, you know, I'll try and set the scene a little in this uh, less desirable suburb of Sydney, um, there were lots of um, English as a second language type immigrants, people who had come to Australia from other nations. And, you know, we we would wish that when they came to Australia, they'd sort of leave their past behind them. But the truth of the matter is that in many cases they don't. And the troubles that they knew in their homelands, they bring to them with their new land. And... Um, one tribe hates another tribe and they keep that hatred alive and whenever they get a chance to uh, to uh, express that hatred, they do so. 
And so it just so happens that at this particular place, there's a young man working behind the bulletproof glass, as you would be if you were working in a service station at 1am in one of the less desirable suburbs of Sydney. There's a young man working behind the bulletproof glass, and he was of a particular tribe. And a bunch of young men, four, maybe five young men, I think it was, of another tribe that had that uh, history of conflict, noticed that he was there and started to cause trouble. And so... I'm there. I'm, it's, it's a big job when you're pumping over a thousand litres of fuel, even with a high delivery pump that you're looking at at least a 10 minute wait. And I'm just there with the fuel pumping away in the truck, watching this unfold in front of my eyes. These four young men are standing around that, uh, screen, screaming abuse at the young man inside, trying to do his job, screaming abuse at him. Every, every sort of round was getting higher and higher. Their anger was becoming greater and greater. The young man was making them more and more angry, angry because he was very calm. He knew that he was safe. As long as he stayed in there, he was safe. He had nothing to worry about. I think he probably also pressed his distress button because, um, a little later, a police car turned up. But, his calmness and his safety was making them angrier and angrier. And now I'm, I'm just telling you, I'm completely changing the wording here. I can't use the wording. But they, um, they were egging each other on. They were building each other up. And the leader of the group got to a particular point. He was utterly, totally enraged. He looked almost like he was about to humanly explode come close to the glass. I, I just never forget this. He came close to the glass. He stood at the glass with his back arched, both fists raised, and screamed in what you would call a demonic voice. If you come out from behind that glass and let me have my way with you, I will kill you quickly and it will be merciful. You can imagine the language. But here's the thing. He meant it. That which he was boasting of, he wanted to do. He not only wanted to kill the young man behind the glass, he wanted to insult him by sexually assaulting him. That was the level of his hatred, his malevolence. That was the level, if you want to put it this way, of Satan's work through him. And, uh, and you know, I remembered the... It's funny how things happen in the providence of God. At that moment, I remembered the conversation I'd had around 10 years before to that young man named Carl who said, such a thing as that would never happen. And I remember thinking, Carl, if only I could tell you such a thing as that can happen and it can happen here in Australia. It can happen in the, in the, in the rougher suburbs of Sydney. It can happen right out there in public, in front of the, in front of the public eye. You can have Sodom and Gomorrah right before your very face. You've only got to know where to look. As I said, I think the young man behind the bulletproof screen had pressed his distress button because it was sort of immediately after that climax of rage that the blue and blue and red lights came onto the service station drive and those guys beat it, took off at 100 miles an hour. How do things get to that point? How do things get to that level? How does wickedness get so dominating? I'm, you know, I'm pretty certain that 
right up until um, the mid-80s, maybe even to the early 90s, if you had have taken some kind of survey in Australia and asked the people if it had have been representative of all the age groups and if you had have said, do you think Australia is a Christian nation? I'm pretty sure that you would have got something in excess of 60 or 70% would have said yes. Now, what they meant, we might not agree with. You know, people would call it a Christian nation and as far as you and I are concerned, well, that doesn't mean everyone's a regenerate born-again Christian. But they would have said yes, that everyone knows the commandments, that everyone knows what it is they ought to do, that Australia is a Christian nation. Well, you come to now and what are we and what is this nation and what is Australia? You know, we... I've given you the example of this display of evil and anger at a truck service station. Well, what about the display of evil and anger that you get every year in Sydney at that thing that they call the gay Mardi Gras? Evil, anger, out there, in public, on display. And when you speak against it, you're apparently doing evil. You're doing psychological damage to these poor people who are just loving according to their way of love. I hope you understand I'm being sarcastic. It's hatefulness. It's hatefulness. It's a hatefulness directed towards God. What did we read in Genesis? When God created them in his image, he made them male and female. And any denial in sexual terms of that male and female meeting and the purpose and the functionality of male meeting female is an absolute rebellion and a hatred of God. It's a rebellion and a hatred of God. And that's what we're looking at here. And we're looking here at God's dealings with a man called Lot. With a man called Lot. And every time I consider Lot... I have to consider what scripture tells me about Lot. Because in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 to 8, we read, And if he, speaking of God, rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds, deeds that he saw and heard. I'm told three times that Lot is righteous. Lot is righteous. Yet as we get further into Genesis chapter 19, we're forced to conclude that if God has said Lot is righteous, well, then we must say that Lot is righteous. And yet even at the same time, we have to basically come to the conclusion that in Scripture he might well be the weakest man who got to be called righteous in the sight of God. Let's um, consider the trajectories as we get to this point. Trajectory, what do I mean? Everybody's moving along a certain trajectory. There is no such thing as standing still in the Lord. There is no such thing as standing still in the world. Everybody is headed in a certain direction. There's always a trajectory. Consider Abraham. We've been studying Genesis. Abraham, blessed with the covenantal promises of God. He's gone from strength to strength. His faith has grown. He's been promised to him that he's going to have a promised child, Isaac, through his wife, Sarah, that this is going to be miraculous because both of them put that together. They really shouldn't be having children, but God has said, no, about this time next year, you'll be having children. Abraham, by God, raised up to intercede 
to be a man of prayer, to be God's man upon the earth, God's representative. Abraham interceding. We read through it, interceding for the city. And I wonder if Abraham stepped back after that little session of intercession thinking, well, there you go, I think I've pretty much covered it. I'm pretty sure I got I got that to within acceptable parameters. It was a good few years ago now that Lot went off down there and, well, he's got a wife and he's got a couple of daughters. So surely, you know, by now he would have had some influence on his family and they'd believing in the covenant, they'd be believing in the covenant God Yahweh and that'd make four people and then well girls meet guys and you know they like maybe they maybe there's some more people around about they've gathered some friends perhaps by now lots been effective in some kind of mission kind of work and maybe now you'd find 10 people who've put their trust in Yahweh by now i think i've done it I think I've secured them. I think, I hope, I trust, I pray. We know too well that uh, Lot was a very unsuccessful, very unsuccessful missionary or preacher or planter of the word of God. As we continue next week, we'll see that, uh, no, he hadn't managed to bring his wife into the faith and, No, he hadn't managed to bring his daughters into the faith. and No, he hadn't managed to bring his betrothed son-in-laws into the faith. and Nor had he reached anyone else. It was Lot and Lot alone. And we'll study that with with some care next week. But Lot was on a trajectory. If Abraham was on the trajectory of becoming an effective man of intercession, well, We'll say this for Abraham. He brought the number down to 10. And I honestly, as I have a feeling he thought he'd probably done enough. By the time he got to 10, he thought he'd done enough. He may not have secured 10 people, but he secured a principle. What was he interceding about? He was praying that surely the judge of the earth will do what is right and that the righteous shall not fare as the wicked. That was the point of his prayer. The judge of the earth will do what is right and the righteous shall not fare as the wicked. And so though there was only one man there and that man was Lot and Abraham had hoped there were 10, turns out there was only one and yet that prayer of Abraham in the providence of God was enough to secure at least the safety of Lot and those who came directly under Lot's authority. But the the trajectory of Lot, if you have your Bibles in front of you, let's look. Genesis chapter 13. Abraham and Lot separate is the title my Bible has put at the head of this chapter. We'll start reading at verse 8. Genesis chapter 13, verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked 
great sinners against the Lord. Just notice a few things about Lot here. Lot up to this point is living in company with Abram. Lot up to this point is worshipping alongside Abram. Lot up to this point is part of Abram's company. Notice at verse 10, he lifted up his eyes. You know, it's kind of like Eve gazed upon the fruit. You know, there are people, they sit in the church and all they can do is look out of the church and into the world. And they want what's out there and they have to have what's out there. And it looks like it's so much more fun out there. The grass looks greener out there. I mean, I, th- I think this might literally be where the grass looks greener saying came from. He's up on the hills of Hebron. He looks down into the Jordan Valley and the grass was green down there. They had water. And look at what he says for himself. Verse 11, Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. A <laughs> little bit presumptuous, isn't it? I'll take it all. I'll take all the Jordan Valley. It sounds like he's assuming that whatever he wants, he gets. I'll take all the Jordan Valley. And then it says he settled, I like the way that King James puts it, hard up against the walls of Sodom. He's not quite in the city. Doesn't go into the town. He goes as far as the town. Moved his tent as far as Sodom. You know, these people, we're told that they're wicked and great sinners, but they've got some money, they've got some cash. And he wanted, you know, the the old business rule, rule one, rule two, rule three. What are they? Location, location, location. He wanted to trade. He wanted to be able to get some of their money off them. He wanted some of that wealth that he could see moving in and out of the town. Location, location, location. The best place to trade is right up against the wall of the city. Just outside the gates. That city of great and wicked sinners. Looking at Genesis chapter 14. Starting at verse 8. We're looking here at the war of the kings. The area gets invaded. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Well, business was pretty good outside the gates, but it turns out that business could be even better if you got yourself a nice location, location, location inside the gates. I'll have all the Jordan Valley and I'll live next door to Sodom. I like the money that I make in Sodom. I think I'll move in. There's a a nice little location. It's up for lease. We could move in there. Imagine the convenience. Yeah, I know the men of Sodom are wicked and great sinners, but oh, the opportunity. The opportunity. Who could say no to the opportunity? You know how many Christians I know have done evil things because they see an opportunity and they assume that it comes from the Lord? Let me give you some examples. I know a guy who helped make a documentary for the Buddhist faith. 
He's into electronic media and editing and stuff like that. This guy's a Christian. I went to church with this guy for years. And he's decided to start a business in multimedia. And the first opportunity that came his way was to make a documentary with the Buddhists. And he did it. I said, why did you do that? He said, oh, well, I prayed about it and I figure if the opportunity came, it must have come from God and I'd have to do it. You idiot. I'm sorry, you fool. Seriously? You help another religion present its best face to the world in the name of taking an opportunity that came your way from God? I think of parents. They wanted their daughter to be a model. Beautiful girl, attractive girl. Everyone, every, you couldn't help but notice this girl was mighty fine looking girl. First job that comes her way is what? Lingerie model. Or one of those places that sells basically see-through underwear. They wouldn't have done it, would they? They wouldn't have taken their 16 and a half year old daughter and let her photo go naked out in the magazines all over the country, would they? Well, they did it. They did it. The opportunity must have come from God. This is the career she was seeking. So he had to take the opportunity. You know, there's this thing in scripture, it's called being tested. You know, why in the, why in the world was there a garden? Was there a tree in the middle of the garden from which we were not to take the fruit? It was the point of testing, wasn't it? It was there for a test to see whether or not we would offer obedience to all of God's commands, not only the law that God had written in Adam and Eve's heart, but he gave them an external law. That tree, it's reserved. You don't get to touch it. You get to touch anything and everything else. You don't get to eat the fruit from that tree. And the serpent come along and said, there's an opportunity here. That fruit's better than any other fruit and it'll make you more godly. You should take the opportunity. Lot moves into Sodom. What an opportunity. It's a prosperous place. Business will be good. We'll make heaps. One of these days we'll go back to Abraham with bags of gold and silver along behind us and we'll buy whatever we want. And he'll realise just how well we did when we chose the Jordan Valley. What an opportunity. Every opportunity that comes your way is not necessarily from God. In the providence of God, every opportunity that comes your way is allowed to come your way. But some things are tests which you are supposed to look at through a biblical lens and apply the word of God and say, no, not for me, not for us, not for my family. As for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. You don't have to take every opportunity that's there before you. So now he's dwelling in Sodom. And then we come to Genesis chapter 19, verse 1. And not only is he dwelling in Sodom, but he feels that it's time that he tried to exercise some influence in Sodom. Someone sitting at the gate is kind of basically sitting themselves in the place of prominence. They're sitting themselves in the place where the elders of the town meet. They're sitting themselves in the place where the important transactions happened. The two angels, so um, by the way, the three men that Abraham had um, had to had to lunch, 
One was Yahweh, pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, walking the earth as a man, and two were angels. Remember, Abraham and Yahweh stood and Abraham was interceding and the two men went on ahead. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When he saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and immediately tried to get them out of harm's way. Turn aside to your servant's house, spend the night, wash your feet, that you may rise up early and go on your way. Why would he want them to go early? He's thinking to himself, this is pretty good. They've come in, they've come in so late, no one will notice them. If I can push them out the gate before anyone's out of bed, there'll be no trouble tonight. We can move them on without trouble. And I can feel like I've done something decent. I've uh, protected some people from the troubles of this town. When's it time to leave a place? When's it time to leave a place? I would suggest to you that if you happen to know that any stranger that comes into a place is liable to be raped, be they male or female, it's probably time to leave the place. You know, you can sit there and tell yourself, I have influence here. I'm making a difference here. Well, yeah, all right, if you think so. (laughs) If you think so. But, you know, Jesus did recommend to the disciples that in certain places they were to shake the dust from their feet as a witness against that place and keep on walking. Sometimes it comes to that point, my friends. And they said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. Interesting. Why would they want to do that? Well, what are they there for? Now, you know, I think they know what kind of town they've walked into. I don't think they're going to be at all surprised by the things that happen. But we'll spend the night in the town square. Let's see how it unfolds. Let's just see what these people are like. But Lot presses them strongly and they turn aside and enter his house. And then Lot, to his credit, he makes them a feast and bakes unleavened bread and they ate probably thinking to himself, well, that's pretty good. I've got them out of sight. Nothing much seems to have happened. But, verse 4, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. We're to understand something here. This isn't just a delegation of bad boys. You know, every town's got some crazy guys in it. Every town's got some rough people in it. This isn't, this isn't that kind of thing. All the men of the city, all the people to the last man, young and old, imagine. What kind of place would it be when the news gets out that there's some new flesh in town, the people form a mob and say, let's have it. It's ours. We take possession. It's ours. We do as we please. It's a place where everyone has been given over. Remember what we read in Romans chapter 1 about people being given over? It starts off that they refuse to simply acknowledge that there is God who is over all of creation, for he is the creator. Scripture tells us that God has revealed himself in creation. He hasn't revealed himself in a saving way in creation. To know that there is a God, there are many people who know that there is a God, is not to be saved. But it's to know the truth, just the same. 
To know that there is a God and to not to bend the knee and worship that God is a sin that actually condemns a person to hell. They know there is a God, yet they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You see, this is about power. This is about rebellion. This is about saying to all the peoples around about, we do as we please here. We have the power here and there is nothing you can do about it. No one makes us pay. Reminds me of certain politicians and public servants in this nation at this time. They seem to think that they don't answer to anyone for anything and that they can do as they please. They seem to think that they can rule by decree. We make up our mind. We tell you that's the way it is. We expect you to do it. We ourselves break our own rules all the time and we couldn't care less. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. I'm sure that um, Moses here has done as I did in that earlier illustration. He's changed the language. He's made it far more polite than it actually was. And I'm sure that um, it was basically a mob encouraging egging each other on, screaming, shouting, making all the noise and commotion they can. Bring them out to us that we may know them. Verse 6, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. I beg you, my brothers, I think he's desperately trying to get them to listen. I'll give him credit. I'll I'll say that he doesn't actually see himself as one of their brothers. We're told that he's righteous lot. He's obviously never joined them in this particular sin. I'll say that he uses the word brothers simply to try and identify with them and give some power to his pleading. I beg of you, brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now, this is, I'm told, Middle Eastern hospitality even to this day. If you're taken under someone's roof, if you're taken into someone's tent, if you're offered a meal in that place, it's basically Middle Eastern hospitality that they are to defend your health at all costs from that moment on. You've come under their care. You've come under their power. You've come under their authority. It's, a, it's apparently in those societies a great wickedness to allow any bad thing to happen to your guest. One of the greatest possible wickednesses of wi- wickednesses. Let's leave it there. Imagine, my friends, imagine You can choose evil on the left or evil on the right. I mean, look at this choice of lots here. Evil on the left, evil on the right. Sacrifice two daughters, sacrifice house guests. Evil on the left, evil on the right. How do you get to that point? Well, we've traced it. Greed and lust, first of all, the grass being greener. Stood on the hills of Hebron, looked down into the Jordan Valley and said, the grass is green there. He never asked any questions. What are the people like? Could we survive there? Will it be good for my family? He didn't ask any of those questions. The grass is green there. I'll have all of it to myself. And off he goes. And he moves in right next door to hell. Or right next door, I should say, to the gateway to hell. 
to make some money, to trade, to get some wealth. Then he gets, somehow or other, he gets that opportunity to move into town, to do even better for himself. In he goes. Every step of the way, he's basically... Have you ever um, seen a large shearing shed in operation? At the back of the shearing shed, you've got very large pens which hold thousands upon thousands of sheep. And then you've got this really complex system of gates and you can move them around and divide them up into smaller mobs and then you can open one gate, close another gate and 20 sheep have suddenly got no choice but to run single file down a particular race and they end up in a particular pen which is being serviced by a particular pair of shearers. And then you go back and you swing two different gates and then they run down a different race and they end up in a certain pen in front of a different pair of shearers. And then you open another couple of gates and you sort of, you control their movements. You direct them so that they end up in a certain place. How did Lot end up in that certain place? Well, he was like a sheep in a race. He's every, he's every choice taken apart from the wisdom of the Lord. He's every foolish step takes him closer and closer and closer to this point where he's now in a situation where on his left is evil and on his right is evil and he's trying to choose which evil is the lesser evil. Now, that sounds like a local election, doesn't it? You know, when, when, when you think about who you're going to vote for, <laughs> you sort of always seem to find yourself saying, who's the lesser evil? Who's the lesser evil? Well, my friends, how did we get there? Well, I'd say, ultimately, in a similar way. Perhaps not you and I personally. You might not have been a Christian very long. I'm not trying to blame someone here for what might have happened in 1960 when a particular leader came to power or whatever. But the church in Australia basically lost, gave up, handed over, retreated back from its moral position and allowed Australia to become a godless, evil, immoral nation. The church in Australia did not hold the line, did not cling to the word of God, did not proclaim the truth, proclaimed rotten, pathetic theology that came from those that they call liberals, proclaimed teaching that the word of God was not actually the word of God and that that, what it, that which it says is not that which it means. And don't try and build your word, try, don't try and build your life upon the word. Just do as you please. And as long as you've got a vague belief in God, we'll trust that you're doing well and we'll pronounce that you're saved. <coughs> the church in Australia retreated from where it ought to have been. And the devil came rushing forward. And so now you come to the point in elections where more often than not you're looking at evil on the left and evil on the right and just trying to decide who's going to do the least damage between this election and the next one. How did the nation get there? Through following the same kind of course that Lot followed. Bad choices, foolish choices, seeking always the short-term gain. Seeking always to be great in the world instead of great in the eyes of God. And so he offers them up his daughters and they're not interested in his daughters. 
We'll talk more about this next week. Why? Before you say, oh, it's obvious why they only wanted male flesh, well, they must have had females in the town and they must have had use for female flesh too or there would have been no young men. Why didn't they want the daughters? And the answer is, well, we'll find out later, but I'll give you the answer now as far as I can see. The answer is the daughters were already of Sodom. You know, those of you who know the story know that in the end, the girls end up uh, seducing their own father. They were already of Sodom. They were already associated with the crowd that was outside the door. Whether we get them tonight or next week or next month or whatever, we get them. They're already part of the crew. Don't need to worry about them. They'll be here tomorrow. They'll be here in a couple of weeks. Just remember this. Lot says that they're virgin daughters. Well, wicked church girls, wicked girls in a godly environment can do a whole lot of things and do do many, many things and still call themselves virgins. I realise that's confrontational and it's probably not pleasant to hear in a sermon on a Sunday morning, but I'm sorry, I've been around churches way too long. I've been around young people in churches way too long. If you want to sit here and imagine that everybody's as innocent as the driven snow, well, perhaps maybe I should leave you alone in that, but... Reality tells me that that's not the way things are. These girls weren't innocent. Perhaps technically they could still be called virgins, but that doesn't mean innocence. And so the men of Sodom had no interest in them. They're guaranteed. They're in the bag. One way or another, we get them. Not worried about that. These two men that you brought in last night, I heard they looked all right. And if they're travellers, they might well be on their way in the morning. You better get them out here, Lot, and you better do it quick. Verse 9, but they said, stand back. And then they start to speak of Lot. You know, this is the compromised Christian who thinks he's having a little bit of influence in the place where he lives. This fellow, this one, came to sojourn and he has become the judge. (laughs) So you imagine these guys, they're all talking amongst each other. Where's this guy get off? He only lives in town because we gave him permission to take up a lease. He's not even one of us. And now he thinks he's telling us what's right and wrong? Now he thinks he's going to define how we behave ourselves? We're going to deal worse with you than with them. We're going to have three men tonight now, you and your two friends. Big party out in the town square. Look out. Then they pressed hard against the man lot and drew near to break the door down. Okay, violence, mob violence, a riot. uh, You've got this, this kind of savage madness going on. It's not just about lust, it's about the desire for power, it's about the desire for submission, it's about bullying. It's about bullying. You know, the bully, the bully's not really getting off on the fact that they're hurting somebody. The bully's not really getting off on the fact 
that they're getting their way. The bully is getting off on the fact that they're having mental domination over somebody, that they're, that they're expressing mental power over somebody. You know, have you ever noticed? You know, I've, I've had, I had occasion once where I had a fight with a bully. The kid was about two foot bigger than me and about two foot broader than me, and he bashed me up. But before he bashed me up, I managed to punch him once in the mouth. He never came near me again after that. He never came near me again after that. Why? Because he knew the mental domination thing was gone. Even though he bashed me up for punching him once in the mouth, the mental, the mental grip that he'd been exercising over me in the schoolyard had been broken. With a bully, it's all about domination. Dominate, force submission. Dominate, force submission. Let's play the role of town bullies. Let's dominate. Let's force submission. Let's break down the door. Let's terrify these people. Let's let them know just how mighty and powerful and strong we are. Verse 10, but the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. Now, I think here we're starting to look at some supernatural power being exerted by the angels. Basically, somehow or other, these men get out there, get hold of Lot, get him back into the house and shut the door and the door now stays shut. You shall not pass, to quote a movie. The door now stays shut. Not only does the door stay shut, but at verse 11, and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. They struck them with blindness. I don't know that it necessarily means they struck them with um, total darkness of vision. It can mean that they were dazzled. It can mean that there was, you know, something sort of exploding in their eyesight. Whatever it was, it's kind of like, you know, they could oh, look, there's, there's the gateway, the door's behind the gate, and then the closer they got, the further away it seemed to be. It's not just normal blindness here. There's something supernatural here. God is by supernatural power through the work of these angels protecting Lot and his family at this moment. It's, it's exactly the same word, speaking of blindness, when, when the Syrians went after Elisha. Elisha prayed to the Lord and the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. And so the Lord struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. I mean, that was a troop of people with horses and chariots and they got led to a particular city. And if they were pitch black blind, well, it'd be kind of hard to get to the particular city. But... They were struck with a certain blindness. It strikes me, you know, we, we read in, in, um, in First Thessalonians about that strong, strong delusion. The strong delusion. That's a form of blindness, isn't it? It's the seeing of what you want to see. They, they were struck blind. And yet... In their anger, in their lust, in their desire for wickedness, they wear themselves out reaching for the door. Just imagine, how many hours did it take 
I don't know. But they wore themselves out, reaching for the door. As morning dawned and they took Lot and his family out of the house and out of the city, those men weren't at the door any longer. They wore themselves out. They, You know, you watch people destroy themselves. You watch people destroy themselves. I've watched people I love destroy themselves with partying and with alcohol and with just generally stupid behaviour and unwise decisions. You know, I, I, I think, you know, and my own dad who has died. He started off, if you want to think of it this way, up here. He inherited a farm. He had a house. He had a business. He had a wife. He had a family. By the time he died, he was somewhere way down here. He lived alone, isolated. He had partitioned off a cot in a workshop. He lived with nobody. He did not live in a house. He did not even have a shower in his workshop. And that was where he was and that was where he chose to be. And as far as contact with myself and my brothers, his sons, he chose to isolate himself out of that contact to have as little as possible to do with us because we had become Bible-banging Christians. And he died alone. And he lived what I can only describe as a miserable life. And he came to what I can only describe as a miserable death. And he would not repent. He would not repent. He would not back away. And I couldn't speak to him about these things and I did try on the occasion to be rebuffed. He just kept groping and groping and groping. He just kept doing foolish and stupid things. When they told him to cut back the alcohol, he laughed at a doctor and said, I'm going to die somehow, aren't I? And just kept living like a fool, destroying himself, committing suicide, drink after drink after drink. Until finally he succeeded, groping, groping, groping. These fools, these evil, wicked, lustful fools with their desire to uh, rebel against God's created order, their desire to own and to dominate male flesh, to deny God's very purpose in creation for human sexuality. Groping, 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 struck blind, yet they won't give up. We want our wickedness, we want our sin and we've got to have it. Christianity, becoming a Christian, learning wisdom, becoming wise. You know, if it were just a choice between right and wrong and things that work and things that don't, well, wouldn't everyone believe? Wouldn't everyone believe? How many miserable people do you know here in our little hometown? Shaking the head because in your business you come across a lot of them. They, they, come through your, they come through your clinic every day, every weekday. Miserable, stupid, lonely lives. Divorced, separated from children. Some children here, some children there. Wasting their money and their time on stupidity and nonsense. No purpose to live, therefore live only for the pleasure of the moment. 
hook up with someone new on Tinder every second week. You catch a disease, go to the doctor, get a treatment and go back again for your next dose. That's the life they're living. Spend more than two months with someone, you end up hating their guts and wanting to kill each other. In a C.S. Lewis book, in a visit to hell, he found that the problem with hell, you know, people say, I'll be there with my friends. Now, this is just, this is a book, it's, it's, a, it's a metaphor, it's C.S. Lewis working his imagination, trying to teach something about the nature of sin and the nature of wickedness. He said, the problem with hell is it just keeps getting bigger and people keep moving further out. Someone arrives in hell and they get their accommodation and they realise that they're close to people, so they move further out. And then other people realise that they don't like being close to people either and they move further out. And so then the person moves further on out. He said, and so what happens is uh, everybody divides themselves off from everybody else because they can't live alongside people. They can't live with people. They can't live with social interactions. You know, look at these things. I've got these things. I love them. Love technology. Love my phone. Love my iPad. I admit it. I find them useful tools. You wonder how I can do the job I do and yet come to you prepared to preach every week? It's because God has given me these tools. Go to a restaurant, go to a coffee shop. Everybody's sitting with their face in the phone and nobody's talking to anybody. Isolated. Crowd of 100 people, isolated. Isolated by their own little games, isolated by their own little sins, isolated by their own little desires. <clears throat> you know, they talk about how the uh, age of marriage is uh, ever increasing. Well, one of the reasons it's ever increasing is that young people are burying their faces in electronics and their lives are being buried in electronics. Young men, stupid games, young girls, stupid movies, whatever it might be. Absolutely dedicated to just taking in as much of this electronic information as they possibly can and not meeting people. They wouldn't know how to. You know, you can imagine them sitting like there and there and sending each other a text. How are you feeling? Is the night going okay? Oh, look, it's going all right. I hope the food's all right. Oh, right. And then, yeah. <laughs> that would be a date. Isolated, not relating, but hating. And we live in a town filled with people like this. Blind, groping, destroying themselves. Step after step after step of destruction. Stupid choice after stupid choice. One of my cousins died recently. About six weeks back. He'd been destroying himself since he was 13 years old. Drugs, alcohol, sex. Nothing was ever enough. It always had to get worse and worse. It always had to be more and more intense. Always needed more. He got to the, you know, the mid-30s and decided that um, couldn't live like this anymore. Oh, you'd think, did he repent? No, he just went into some rehab program. And in the rehab program, he'd clean up for a few months and then he'd be out on the streets and then give him a bit of time. Drugs, sex, alcohol. 
back into rehab, back out again, back into rehab, back out again, a couple of visits to jail as he went stealing things to find the money to buy the drugs, etc., etc. Until ultimately, he's dead. He's dead. A wasted life, lived, lived um, groping for the door. Groping for the door. Lived in self-destruction. Every choice moving him a millimetre closer to the edge till finally the cliff gives way under him and he's gone. And that's how people are living out there these days. That's the life. That's the life. And you're some kind of evil person if you dare to get in the way of their sin. If you dare to get in the way of their pleasure. How dare you suggest? How dare you tell me? Etc. Etc. So how does Lot end up with evil on the left and evil on the right and unable to choose one over the other? Well, my friends, go right back to the beginning of his story. He stepped away from covenant grace. He stepped away from the knowledge of God. He stepped away from being a fellow worshipper with Abraham. He wanted too much for himself. Remember, he wanted too much for himself. We're told that both Lot and Abraham had great herds. You know, it would have been better for him to sacrifice his herds and say, look, I'll just stay part of your household. Make me a servant. Make me a servant. I'll be satisfied with what you give me. It would have been better for him. It would have been better for his family. But oh no, he looked across at the Jordan Valley and said, we'll have the whole valley. Mr. Abraham, and you'll see that I can be just as big time and just as successful as you. That's the world around us, my friends. They have the knowledge of God and they suppress the truth in unrighteousness and they're given over to their wickedness till they come under a strong delusion. And it's God who sends that strong delusion. And my friends, it's God who must break that strong delusion. And so we're left with prayer. We're praying. We're praying that God would open the eyes of the blind. We're praying that God would grant repentance, that God would change the lives of these people around us who are breaking our hearts. We live, we live here in a nation that is accelerating towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Accelerating towards Sodom and Gomorrah and God keeps sending his people. God keeps sending the warnings. My friends, thank God that we here have heard the voice of reason, that we must turn our hearts and our lives over to the Lord Jesus Christ. Seek forgiveness of our sins. Be granted repentance. Change the way that we live. Live in accordance with the word of God. But my friends, there's a whole nation before us that needs to hear this same truth, and we need to be preaching it. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, as I think of the blindness of the fools who grope, as it were, for the door, struck blind, struck under a strong delusion, restrained from their wickedness. And yet even so, they want more and more and more, and they cannot and they will not back down. Father, we pray that you would be gracious and merciful to this nation. We pray that you would send forth preachers of the gospel, 
the kind of people who are willing to leave the world behind and have the face of the Lord Jesus before them and the word of God in their hand to take up their cross and to lead people to faith and repentance. Revive the church here in Australia, we pray. Forgive us our sins. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.